from Princeton University's Blue Lab. This is Carried by Water. I'm Mario Soriano. Episode 2, If We Called It a Tsunami. Part 1, Storm Search. Magandang gabi po sa lahat. Kakatapos lang natin kausapin ang mga dalubhasa mula sa DOST, pag-asa, The night before Yolanda, primetime TV programming was interrupted by an urgent message from then-President Benigno Noynoy Aquino. He warned the public about the approaching powerful storm and its associated threats, including strong winds, rain, overflowing rivers, and lahar or pyroclastic mud flows near some volcanoes. Minomonitor din po natin ang banta ng mga storm surge sa mahigit isanda mga po. The president also mentioned that experts were monitoring the threat of storm surges in more than a hundred areas where waves may reach five to six meters. He emphasized the importance of information with statements like, Let me repeat myself, this is a very real danger, and we can mitigate and lessen its effects if we use the information available to prepare. If you already know that you are in a hazardous area, evacuate. Lumikas na po tayo kung alam nating nasa peligro ang ating puhok. Sa mga nasa baybay, huwag na po tayo... The President closed his five-minute-long message by invoking how no storm could bring the Filipino people to its knees as long as we were united. He wished everyone to stay safe in the coming days. Gaya po na lagi, alam nating walang bagyong Maaaring magpaluhod sa Pilipino kung tayo'y magbabayanihan. Naway magiligtas po ang lahat sa mga susunod na araw. Maraming salamat po at magandang gabi po sa lahat. The broadcast ended with a list of five websites where the public could get additional information. Pagasa, the National Disaster Risk Reduction and Management Council, the government website, the Mines and Geosciences Bureau, and Project NOAA, or the Nationwide Operational Assessment of Hazards. Project NOAA evokes the biblical figure who built a gigantic ship to survive the flood that engulfed the Earth over 40 days. In 2013, NOAA was a fledgling initiative envisioned to become the country's flagship disaster management program. It was launched in 2012 under the Department of Science and Technology with government funding of 6 billion pesos or over 100 million US dollars. Sticking to the ship analogy, Project NOAA's captain was a geologist and disaster scientist named Mahar Lagmay. NOAA stands for Nationwide Operational Assessment of Hazards. 
which is the application of operations research into the decision-making process of government to handle, uh, to prevent and mitigate the impacts of disasters. Eventually, we were embedded in the operations of the National Disaster Risk Reduction and Management Council, wherein we, as part of the academe, was allowed to participate in the discussions of how to assess the risk of an incoming typhoon using the frontier technologies, using the best available science, and apply it to the decision-making process of the National Disaster Risk Reduction and Management Council. The mandate of Project NOAA was to deploy the latest science and technology to generate and disseminate hazard-specific, area-focused, and time-bound warnings to the public. In the days before Yolanda, NOAA scientists forecasting the storm's possible impacts were alarmed as they saw something unusual in their computer simulations. I remember very clearly that two or three days before Yolanda made impact, the group informed me that there was something unusual about the simulation. So I looked at it and then recognizing that yeah, it was unusual because the storm surges were about 5 to 6 meters in height, which was different from the other simulations that they were studying, which was only about 1 to 2 meters in height. Needless to say, we did action on that by informing the secretary of the Department of Science and Technology. The moment that he heard about this, he called us with the head of the Weather Bureau of the Philippines, Pagasa, and we had a meeting and we discussed the simulations that were kind of strange. They were strange because they were quite high. Recognizing the secretary being astute in, in these things, and he would rather err on the side of safety than, than just ignore it, so he said that oh, this is very important. We need to inform the president about this. That's how the president learned of the possible threat of storm surges from Yolanda. Project NOAA's simulations were also where the president got the 5 to 6 meter number for the height of the storm surges that he announced in that televised warning. How high is 5 to 6 meters? Basketball legend Michael Jordan's height is listed as 6 foot 6 inches or 1.98 meters. So 6 meters is about 3 Jordans stacked vertically. 6 meters is also the typical height of a two-story house. Back in Tacloban, Mario Peñaranda said he had to climb to the roof of the then one-story Pagasa station to avoid being swept away by the surge. I was holding the door because of the strong winds. It would open. So when the storm surge came in, it was just like a spray because it was forcing through the space of that door. I made an attempt to open the door, but you can no longer open the door because 
both sides are already water. So I went to the window, and when I saw the water, it was coming too fast. I broke the glass. I broke the glass. So I went out. My colleague told me not to go out. So I told them we will die here inside this room. So I went out. And because it's already survival, I went up to the roof uh, because I am afraid. I, do, I don't know how to swim. But when I was already able to reach the roof, it was really zero visibility. I was afraid that the storms would hit uh, over a roof. Mr. Peñaranda said that while he was aware of the threat of storm surge, he was still caught by surprise. I was not expecting that it would reach the station. Not too far away from the station, Algina Lakaba had evacuated with her husband and three young children to the Barangay 88 Elementary School near their home. I'm Algina Lakaba. I'm a plain housewife and hopefully becoming a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> My husband is just a dispatcher, a barker from the buses coming from Giwan Eastern Summer. So I have three children. Yung, yung eldest, grade I have three children. The eldest is about to enter grade 11, the second, grade 10, and the youngest, grade 8. We have a school there near Fisherman Barangay 88. There's a two-story building. That's where we evacuated. It was close to where we lived. Most people evacuated to schools. Just as with the Tacloban weather station, the storm surge overwhelmed the school evacuation center. The water carried Algina's husband all the way to downtown Tacloban, near the Eastern Visayas Regional Medical Center, or EverMC. That's almost a four-kilometer distance as the crow flies. Actually, my husband was among the injured because from Barangay 88, he was swept all the way to the old EVRMC. So from airport to EVRMC, that's quite far. Algina attributes her family's survival to two things. Having the right skills and not panicking as the water rose. We survived because we had the skills. My husband and I, we knew how to swim. If we didn't, you probably won't be able to interview me now. There was chaos in the evacuation center when we were there. I didn't panic because I knew how to swim. I just stayed calm, while the people were running and hurting each other in their rush. My three small kids and I just stayed put, hanging onto a window as the water kept rising. In my mind, I'm convinced that we survived because we didn't panic. My children didn't panic. They didn't cry. Because even when they were very young, because we lived by the sea, we already taught them how to swim. Many were not as fortunate. 
The National Disaster Risk Reduction and Management Council's final report on Yolanda listed the official casualty count as 6,300. Most of those deaths were caused by the storm surge. Part 2. Terms of Evacuation In Yolanda's aftermath, as people tried to find explanations for what happened, two narratives kept coming up. One was that people did not understand the term storm surge used in the warnings, so they were not able to take the necessary precautions. Second was that Regardless of the preparations that were made, Yolanda was simply too powerful and all the preemptive actions were rendered ineffective. We had had experiences of storm surges before, but we never recognized it as storm surges. We simply recognized it as high tide together with a strong wind. Uh, although the waves would reach uh, the city streets, but this time, devastating strong waves was really uh, so powerful, so powerful that any preparation we had was not equal to the strength that Yolanda gave to Tacloban City. That's Brando Bernadas. He's currently the City Disaster Risk Reduction and Management Officer of Tacloban. His office the City Disaster Risk Reduction and Management Office is also called Sea Dream for short. Back in 2013, Brando was working directly under the city mayor's office. He was involved in the preparations made before Yolanda struck. The night before high end, I was assigned to monitor preparations of communities in the northern part of the city while the city mayor was supervising the preparation of the communities in downtown proper and southern part barangays. He said it was difficult to convince some communities to evacuate. Before Haiyan, we could hardly convince them to evacuate. Uh, they would simply say, well, we know what to do. We have been through our lives here. We know how this typhoon would impact us. We know where to go. Don't worry about us. According to news reports of Yolanda's aftermath, Tacloban City Mayor Alfred Romualdez suggested that using the word tsunami instead of storm surge might have convinced more people to evacuate and save their lives. CNN reported the mayor stating, quote, We've done drills on tsunami, and when we do tsunami drills, Almost 80% of them really get out. Storm surge? They don't understand. End quote. For its part, Pag-asa said it conducted education campaigns about storm surges in Tacloban before Yolanda. Here's June Galang, who we met last episode. Pag-asa already do the IEC or information and education campaign on that area in Tacloban 
different hazards were communicated there, including storm surge. Their claim that they did not understand, they did not know the term storm surge, maybe for others, but we conducted the IEC or the Information and Education Campaign on that area itself. Mahar Lagmay of Project NOAA said that science and public safety were their main considerations for their warnings. We cried because we knew that there were going to be storm surges that would impact coastal communities in the central Philippines region. And we were helpless. We were even blamed because we should have called it a tsunami. But we could not do that because a storm surge is different from a tsunami. If we called it a tsunami the night before Yolanda made its impact, we could have killed people. Because the actions or the response to a tsunami is different from the response to a storm surge hazard. Storm surge hazards, you have time to move away. Tsunamis might create panic and then a stampede. And we didn't like to do that. So we retained the term storm surge, which unfortunately was not as well known as a tsunami. We had to stick with the science because we feared that we didn't want to kill people by calling it a tsunami. Several of our interviewees in Tacloban recalled that after Yolanda, a rumor spread that a tsunami was coming. Typhoon survivors, having just gone through what they had gone through, ran for the mountains. Of course, there was no tsunami. There was no earthquake to trigger one. While the mental imagery and fear that warnings evoked would have certainly affected people's decisions to evacuate, other factors were also at play. Pamela Kahilig is an anthropologist who studied why some people did not evacuate during Haiyan. We spoke to her at a cafe in Quezon City. I'm Pamela Kahilig. I'm an anthropologist working at the intersection of disaster risk reduction and management, climate adaptation, and architecture and design. I was interested in people who didn't evacuate on the day of impact in Yolanda. What were the different decisions that they had to make when they were experiencing the storm surge? Pamela found that many people had a sense of security based on their previous experience of storms, similar to something that Branda Bernada said earlier in this episode. She also found that men's sense of pride in their house also affected a family's decision to evacuate. In my research, the decision to evacuate whether a family should leave the house is on the male head of household, usually the father. And if they had a hand in constructing the house, they almost felt like it was a sign of weakness and defeat to abandon the house that they built. It's like they failed in protecting their family. So there was some of that sentiment when 
we were talking to the women who had told the stories about how their husbands discouraged them from evacuating even though they were already very afraid of the possible impact of the storm surge. Pamela also noted the sense of helplessness in some communities when it comes to preparing for disasters. There was this sense that if you're poor, then you have no chance against hazards like Yolanda. Like only the rich can prepare for disaster. So if you're poor, you're better off not doing anything at all. And I don't blame them for thinking this way. There's so much inequality in society that people are led to think that disaster preparedness is beyond reach. In other words, people's decisions on whether or not to evacuate during Yolanda were rooted in expectations beyond the warnings they received. Sadly, evacuation was not even a guarantee for survival given Haiyan's magnitude. Brando Bernadas again. Actually, we lost many of our evacuation centers to Yolanda because many of our evacuation centers were buildings and school campuses along coastal areas. To be precise, 68% of evacuation centers in Tacloban were inundated by the storm surge, according to a study from Project NOAA. How did this happen? Maharlagmai says the debacle can be traced to the fact that, while there was information about the possible height of the storm surge, the other key piece of information was not available at that time. What we had then were forecasts of storm surge heights. We needed to reflect that absolute height into the different coastal landscapes of the Philippines. Some were full of cliffs, some were flat. And in places that were flat, the inundation would be so much more inland. Maps could have told us that the inundation could be two to three kilometers inland, depending on the landscape. We did not have those maps. People did not have accurate information on the possible lateral extent of the surge. I stress the word accurate on purpose. Hazard maps were available during Yolanda, but they showed storm surge inundation reaching only up to 50 meters inland, according to Lagmai. They did not capture Yolanda's true inland inundation which extended a few kilometers in some areas. Maps created after Yolanda showed that the peninsula containing the Tacloban airport was completely inundated by the storm surge. This is the same peninsula containing the Pagasa station where Mario Peñaranda and his co-workers were and the Barangay 88 school building where Algina Lacaba and her family evacuated.
Part 3. A Perfect Recipe When I arrived to Takroban, Leite and Samar area, where was the most devastated area by Haiyan, I felt it, the scenery is a very similar to what I saw just after the 2011 Tohoku earthquake in Japan. I've been many places after the tsunami or hurricane as a post-disaster survey. And uh, Takron was one of severely damaged area in my experience. And the scenery was very close to 2011 Tohoku earthquake tsunami to me. That's Nobuhito Mori. He's talking about what stuck out the most to him when he went to Takloban in January 2014, about three months after Yolanda. Mori-sensei is a professor of coastal engineering at the Disaster Prevention Research Institute of Kyoto University in Japan. I caught up with him at the conference of the Asia-Oceania Geosciences Society in Singapore. Mori's group had been developing a simulation model for predicting storm surges for several years. But they have not had a real-world case to validate their model. We have been working on the storm surge and the extreme ocean modeling since the last 25 years. So we had a model to predict, but we didn't have a case study to validate our model. Haiyan proved to be that very rare case that could test the accuracy of those models' predictions. We went to Philippines after the high end to validate our existing model for extreme storm surges. This is because extreme storm surge is a pretty low frequency event. Extreme storm surge exceeds the water level over more than two or three meters, a very low frequency. So we want to check our model to predict inundation by the storm surge. Unfortunately, high end inundated over the Takroban area, which maximum water level was higher than maybe 4 or 5.0 meter. Such kind of event is pretty rare, so we want to validate our model. Mori was part of a post-disaster survey team jointly organized by the Japan Society of Civil Engineers and the Philippine Institute of Civil Engineers. The survey team documented the storm surge height and the extent of inundation from debris and watermarks on the landscape, alongside eyewitness accounts from survivors. Maps of their measurements started to unveil distinct patterns in Haiyan's destruction. Leyte Gulf is the body of water bounded by Leyte Island to the west and Samar Island to the north. The gulf narrows into the San Pedro Bay as one approaches the closest point between the two islands. The bathymetry, or depth of the bay, is also quite shallow. This geography and bathymetry amplified the storm surge generated by Haiyan's winds in the towns along San Pedro Bay's coast. Tacloban City 
is at the tip of the funnel-shaped bay. In high-end Tacroban case, wind blow over 60 to 80 meters per sec over the Gulf of Leyte. So it, it can uh, cause a severe uh, increase of the water level by wind. Additionally, Tacroban area basimetry is very shallow and the uh, storm surge height by the wind in this surge is uh, inversely proportional to the water depth. So uh, shallow water environment near the Tacroban also amplifies the storm surge very much. Storm surge height by wind-induced surge is inversely proportional to the water depths. In other words, the shallower the water, the easier it is for strong winds to push it up, creating higher storm surges. Philip Lapides, Project NOAA's lead storm surge modeler back in 2013, echoes the unique combination that comprised Yolanda. The situation in Tacloban was a perfect recipe for disaster. You have one of the strongest typhoons that ever made landfall in combination with this coastline shape that is very conducive to generating extreme surges. If you look at the map, you will see that the shape of the coast is like a funnel. So what happens is, as the surge propagates near the coast, the volume of water is being funneled into a small area and thereby increasing the surge levels. There are a few other regions in the Philippines that have similar characteristics, but Tacloban is special in this way, and that's why it was a perfect combination of situations that led to this very rare event. Haiyan was indeed a very rare event. However, it was not unprecedented. Part 4. History Repeats Itself uh, Good afternoon, Dr. Soria. Good afternoon, Dr. Soriano. I'm meeting Leia Soria at the AOGS conference. Leia is the first author of a 2016 paper titled Repeat Storm Surge Disasters of Typhoon Haiyan and its 1897 predecessor in the Philippines, published in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society. I found out that there was a historical document about a storm surge in 1897 in the islands of Samar and Leyte. The document in question is El Baguio de Samar y Leyte, or the Typhoon of Samar and Leyte, 12th to 13th of October, 1897, written by the Jesuit priest, Padre Jose Algue. Typhoon Yolanda and the 1897 typhoon are almost the same in terms of the path. Apparently, they went through the same path, like a few kilometers south or north of each other. Yolanda was a little bit stronger, but the 1897, it's also a strong one. So that's a hundred-year record. 
Historian Ambeth Ocampo wrote about the Algue document in his November 19, 2013 column for the Philippine Daily Inquirer. There, he also cited coverage of the October 1897 event in an Australian newspaper which read, Typhoon and Tidal Wave in the Philippines, 7,000 Lives Lost. Ocampo also referenced a November 1912 article in the Washington Herald during the period when the Philippines was under American rule. The headline, 15,000 die in Philippine storm. The reporter wrote, quote, The storm swept the Visayas and is said to have practically destroyed Tacloban, the capital of Leyte. End quote. This history shows us that, with Tacloban's geography, all that's needed is the right storm to trigger destructive and deadly storm surges in the region. In fact, Lea Soria's paper listed seven other storms that generated storm surges in the Samar and Leyte region between the 1897 typhoon and Yolanda. She says we might find more by looking at another kind of record. The sediments. Leia is a sedimentologist. In her work, she searches for the fingerprints of disasters through the sediments that they deposit. She found such a record of Yolanda in the quiescent soil of a mangrove forest in Tanawan, a coastal town along the San Pedro Bay about 20 kilometers south of Tacloban City. So imagine a wetland area that is dominated by mangrove species. So it's quite muddy environment, and the soil there are very, very fine-grained sediments. And then here comes the wave from Typhoon Haiyan. It's a high-velocity flow, so it carries a lot of sediments from the nearshore area. That means anything that the wave can touch. And in Tanawan, which is south of Tacloban, that substrate is mostly sand. And on the beach area, it's dominated by magnetite-rich sand, so that's the black sand. When we went there and collect sediment cores, we saw this 10-centimeter-thick, well-sorted sand layers on top of the mangrove soil. So we know exactly that it comes from Typhoon Yolanda. Out of curiosity, I asked her how she collects the sediment cores. We have either a metal pipe or a PVC pipe that just manually push down to the level that we can possibly reach because we do it manually. We don't have a special machine to do it. Most of the cores that we collected so far, at least in the Tanawan area, is at least one meter long. The longest was 1.6 or 1.8 when we went there very recently. So yeah, just manually pushing down a PVC or a metal pipe. 
then taking it out again. So you have a whole sequence of sediment layers there. She would then examine the sediment core in the laboratory, looking at physical properties like color and grain size distribution, and do tests to determine how old each sediment layer is. Leia says records, such as the Algue report, are helpful to validate or cross-reference with a sedimentological record. She adds that the sediments can potentially offer a longer window into extreme events of the past and help us better understand the future of extreme events under climate change. When you're studying climate change, you need to have a long, long record. Extreme events are called extreme events because they occur in such a way that it's very intense, but then they occur very rarely. For example, a typhoon high on scale occurs only with a 100-year cycle. So if we can look at the sediments and see longer records, we might be able to capture even larger events than Typhoon Haiyan. Part 5. Searching for Safe Ground so how have these factors of geography and history been considered in the recovery effort of Tacloban? One response has been to come up with better evacuation protocols. Walking around downtown Tacloban, one can't help but notice the ubiquitous signs identifying storm surge prone area or flood prone area and arrows pointing to nearby evacuation centers. Brando Bernadas from the Tacloban Sea Dream Office. Before Haiyan, it was simply more on putting people inside safe buildings, jump-packing buildings just to accommodate temporarily displaced individuals. But after Yolanda, we learned so much as to how we should conduct our evacuation operation. Now, our evacuation plan is on a preposition protocol. We count in this particular area as to how many would be evacuees, and we provide household heads with color coded IDs to correspond color coded evacuation centers. In other words, our evacuees now are prepositioned, uh, they know where to go. If your ID is color green, you cannot be accommodated in a color red evacuation center because your names are not found in that uh, evacuation center. If ever you go to a different colored evacuation center, we will bring you to your proper evacuation center. This is how we do the evacuation operation now. The city is trying to prevent jam-packed, overcrowded evacuation centers through this color-coded scheme. Colored in purple in this system are barangays 60, 60A, and 61. Their designated evacuation center? The Tacloban City Convention Center, also known as the Astrodome. The Astrodome 
was used as an evacuation center during Yolanda. It sits along the coast of the Kankabatu Bay, and the waters of the storm surge rushed into the space during the storm. Despite sustaining damages from Yolanda's winds, the building remained standing. Our team visited the Astrodome earlier this year. You'll hear the voice of my colleague, Patrick Ahoko, and then myself. It's July 23rd, 2023. We're here in the Astrodome in the Globan. We're inside the main hall or space. What do you think they're doing? Setting up some kind of stage or something? Yeah, or breaking down. Or breaking down. I think they're breaking down the stage. A couple of days ago, we had passed by there. You know, there, was, there were graduation ceremonies being held here, so but we had to postpone our plans to come in. Ah, maybe that's what the stage is for. Like Probably, the graduation yes. ceremonies. We move closer to the center of the space. Okay. Okay, man. One. Some of the workers breaking down the stage are swinging from a very long rope hanging from the ceiling, laughing, having fun. Yeah, I guess. Maybe it is signs of recovery that the space is being used for celebratory events, celebrations, milestones, such. It's not like this has been frozen in time. Indeed, it is hard to see traces of the Typhoon Yolanda's uh, impact in the space right now. Other than the main event hall, offices, shops, and worship spaces also line the exterior of the Astrodome. It remains an important center for the community in numerous ways. We're now in one of the upper rows of seats. We reflect on how it might have been for the survivors who evacuated here during Yolanda. Evacuees who had nowhere to return to were forced to stay in the Astrodome for days. There's about 14 levels of seats here. What we heard was the first phase of the storm when the wind was more of the threat. People were in the lower levels and once the threats were coming from the surge, people move to the higher levels of the astronome. The structure was intact during the, the storm, largely, right? Yes, that's right. I think it was uh, one section of the roof blew yeah. off, but otherwise it was intact. Still, this is just like a circular space, so it's just rows and rows of seats. Um, 
not the most ideal for evacuation conditions in terms of basic facilities for you know, sanitation, privacy, families and stuff. So you can just imagine maybe just the people were just kind of waiting here. <laughs> Brando Bernadas told us that the city is in the process of upgrading its evacuation centers. We were not following the national standard on humanitarian care on displaced individuals. We simply put people inside safe buildings. As we are preparing to upgrade our capability, we also are upgrading our evacuation centers. We are constructing buildings solely dedicated for evacuation so that at any time when evacuation calls for the utility of these evacuation centers, they are already prepared. A number of our Tacloban interviewees said they have yet to see these new dedicated evacuation centers. Another strategy the local government implemented was to move people away from the coast. In December 2013, just a month after Yolanda, the Tacloban City Council passed an ordinance designating coastal areas within 14 meters of the shoreline as no-build zones. Views are split on this no-build zone policy. Algina Lakaba and her family were resettled from Barangay 88 to a village almost 20 kilometers north. She says she appreciates the government's effort to transfer people away from the coast. The city government tried their best to remove people living along the coast. I think that's the best thing they've done. Not everyone can appreciate it. But I think that's one good thing the government is doing. Because, at least, if no one lives there, maybe there will be less impact if there's another deluge like that. Mahar Lagmai questions the adequacy of a uniform no-build zone. Again, this is not learning the lessons of Yolanda. We know that in some places, the inundation was three kilometers. That blanket no-build zone is It does not mean anything in terms of storm surge hazards. It does mean something if we're talking about easement, where people can, can bike or people can walk. But it does not mean anything in terms of the big hazards that we are discussing, the Yolanda type of hazards. The no-build zones must be based on hazard maps that are produced from the best available technologies and the best available science. I'm sorry for, sorry for my French. <laughs> Philip Lapides echoes the importance of basing policies on rigorous science. 
the concept of no-build zones in the Philippines should be updated. Currently, there exist some guidelines that sets a static number, a static distance from the coast that sets a certain area as no-build zones. But this should be a dynamic criteria in a sense that each coastline is different and so the no-build zone area should also be different. This should be based on empirical evidence and the probabilistic nature of the coastal hazards. From 2012 to 2017, Project NOAA created high-resolution, multi-scenario hazard maps for the entire country, not just for storm surge hazards, but also for floods and landslides. The government discontinued its funding in 2017, and the program is now housed under the University of the Philippines Resilience Institute. The hazard maps that the program created are freely available through NOAA's website. The Tacloban Sea Dream Office is filled with large hazard maps, although they are not the ones from Project NOAA. These hazard maps are rectified hazard maps because the old hazard maps were not really the, the reality of hazards in Tacloban City. That is why these are new ones because these were rectified by map experts that came from international communities or international agencies. For one is Habitat for Humanity, USAID, who had map experts, mappers. We have provided all these maps to barangays wherein we are also convincing the barangays to localize their hazard maps, come up with their own hazard maps, guided by these generalized Tacloban City hazard maps. And a lot of these maps are already distributed in the academic schools because, you know, one of the many impacts of Haiyan is that schools had started to mainstream, integrate this into their curriculum, disaster risk reduction and management. Pamela Kahilig brings up a different but equally important dimension to the question of no-build zones. I actually have a picture of that no-build zone sign where someone who obviously used to live near that sign painted over the no so that the sign had build zone on it and then they built a house next to it. I'm an advocate of participatory approaches. And for me, they should have consulted the people who would have been affected by that no-build zoning rather than just implementing it and displacing people who were already affected by a disaster. Aldrina Lakaba also notes that while moving people away from physical hazards is important, Authorities should also make sure that people can live decent lives. Not everyone here has a job. Most of us here used to be fishermen. When you transfer people like fisher folk away, you have to also provide them with a livelihood that's sustainable. The government's strategic plan for recovery was outlined in a December 2013 document titled Reconstruction Assistance on Yolanda. The backdrop of the cover page was a map of the Philippines showing Yolanda's track 
and highlighting the provinces affected. Four stick figures were raising a flag, and three were shown in various construction activities. There, at the bottom of the cover page, were the words, Build Back Better. How has this mantra of building back better unfolded? It turns out, concrete infrastructure remains the focus, sometimes despite local opposition and concerns about its impacts on nature. The initial plan was the coastal no-build zones was going to be a green belt, but of course it could not be implemented. The city continues to prioritize concrete forms of development. So actually, there's a proposed causeway connecting this part of the city to the airport. As you can see, the plans are still really infrastructure-driven. There has to be a different way for promoting development. Next episode, Coastal Infrastructure, Nature-Based Solutions, and Ecosystem Impacts. Carried by Water was created by me, Mario Soriano, and is a production of Blue Lab at Princeton University. This episode was produced by me along with Patrick Hauhoko and Braden Carroll. It was mixed by Braden Carroll. Thanks to Cassie Eng from the Princeton Filipino Community Undergraduate Club for providing voiceover for this episode. For their support and expertise, we also thank at Princeton, the High Meadows Environmental Institute, the Humanities Council, and the Office of the Dean of Research, as well as Covenda Media. Alison Carruth is the director of Blue Lab, and Baron Bixler is creative director. Visit our website, bluelab.princeton.edu, for photographs for this episode. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Instagram at bluelab.princeton. Again, that's at bluelab.princeton. Until next time.